Yeah. yeah. Okay, so today we're doing Parshat Bahalotcha. And we're once again going back to the beginning of the Parsha. We're going back to some of the services that took place in the Temple. Now, uh, one of the uh, vessels in the Temple was the menorah. If you think about it, which kind of important fixtures does a person need in a home? Just bare minimum. What does a person have in his home? What kind of a what kind of a minimum uh, lights? Lights is one. Cooking. Cooking oven. Good. And what else? Bed. Bed to sleep. No. Okay, the bed to sleep. Sleep, but we're talking. That's for sleeping quarters. Okay. But what in the house, Jordan? A table. A table. Oh, okay, so we have table chairs. Table chairs. Now, inside the room of the uh, structure, now the, the 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 general area was made up of several sections of the uh, sanctuary. You had a courtyard that was like hung around with curtains, and then you had a uh, a structure. That structure was divided into two parts. There was a structure. There was one part which was the Holy of Holiest. That's the Kodesh HaKadoshim. That held the Ark. But in the front room, there were these three basic fixtures that one needs in any, in any apartment or any room. There was a candelabra, in Hebrew known as the menorah. Like we say, Hanukkiah. But that was the menorah. It had a table, and it also had a mezbeach, which is sort of a fire, which they used to use for incense. They used to burn, the Kohen would come every morning and every afternoon, and he would bring some incense, a special uh, uh, mixture of different kinds of herbs and different kinds of, of spices that would give out a good aroma. So that would be, that's known as the ketoris, the incense offering. So, so far it seems like the utensils or these fixtures that were in the Mishkan were regular standard uh, fixtures. Now, what does one use? Say a lamp, you need light, you need a menorah. In those days, no electricity, no fire, no, no fire, so how do they use? They use lamps. That's how they make light. So, now one would think that if the Mishkan, the sanctuary, had a, a candelabra, it was to make light. I mean, if people went in there, they should see uh, where they're going. Maybe it shouldn't be dark over there. Maybe this should be a, to light up. Maybe for the Divine Presence, for Hashem, for God who dwells in there, it shouldn't be dark. Now, do you think that God needs the light that God needs physical light to uh, make light for him. So one wonders why was it necessary to be a menorah, a, a candle, a candelabra uh, inside of the uh, temple? For what purpose? Right? Now, we're going to read in this parsha, we're going to read something very strange. Now, one would expect that when you light, if you're lighting a uh, menorah, a fixture, if you're lighting a flame, you want to get as much light as you can. 
out of the menorah. And, you know, we have today like spotlights. So if you want to get a lot of lights, you're not going to shine all the spotlights only in one place. You want to move them around and you want to have them in a lot of different places so that you can get as much light as you can get. So people, when they want to get light, they spread out the light throughout the room. Or they would spread out the light within the candelabra. But something very strange took place with the menorah fixture. Something very strange took place with the menorah fixture. That the menorah fixture, when the Kohen lit the menorah, he lit it in such a way that all the wicks of the menorah were facing the center piece of the menorah. We had the menorah itself, there was the middle piece, that's called the body of the menorah. Out of the body of the menorah we had six branches going out. Two, two and two. You had six branches plus the middle stem, that's the body, you had seven. So instead of having the lights go out all over, you had the lights facing, all the wicks were facing the body of the menorah. And one wonders, wouldn't it be better to have more light, so it should have the light lit, so it should light more area, instead of trying to concentrate all the light towards the face of the menorah. Everything going in one place. Besides the point, the face of the menorah is not where you need the light. You want the light to go out all over the room. So why did they have all the lights tilting and facing towards the menorah? For that exact same point that I mentioned before. This is to demonstrate that the purpose of the menorah was not to give light to the divine. God does not need the light to be able to see, to make it cozy. God does not need the light. That's not the purpose of the menorah. Matter of fact, the purpose of the menorah was to provide light to the entire world. So even though you lit it in the menorah inside of the sanctuary, but it actually gave off its light to the entire uh, to the entire world. Now, in the Mishkan, in the temporary sanctuary that they had in the desert, there were no windows in the structure. It was totally covered. So it was covered by the beams, and it was covered by the tapestries that hung over the covers over the Mishkan. So there were no windows, no lights inside there. The only light actually was the light of the menorah. There were no light inside there. But later on, when they built the temple, the first and the second temple, they built structures. Those structures had windows in them. And the amazing thing is that the windows that they had in those uh, temples, in the temple, they were made in a way that it was wide on the inside and narrow on the outside. It's called in the, the, the words called shkufim atumim, which means it's like this. Uh, most of the time when people build windows like that, they have it wide on the outside, towards the outside, and narrow towards the inside. Because the reason they built it in such a way is so that they want to get as much light as they can to come from the outside into the inside. So they have the thickness of the wall, the area, they have it going wide on the outside and narrow on the inside so they can get as much light from the outside into the inside. But in the temple, it worked the other way around. 
inside it was na- wide, outside it was narrow, for the exact same reason, because the light of the of the Mishkan, of the Beis HaMikdosh, of the sanctuary, went to the outside. So therefore the windows were built in such a way too. But that's what we are going to read here in the very first uh, uh, verse over here, talking about how Aaron is supposed to light the menorah. And let's see what the what the verse said. Why don't we start with Yishai? He's a guest all the way from Israel. So why don't we start with Yishai? Sorry. <laughs> okay. Okay. Start. Do the first two verses. English or Hebrew. Do it. In, uh, do it in, in English, so we all understand. Okay. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to Aaron and say to him, when you light the lamps, the seven lamps shall cast their light toward the face of the menorah." Stop one second. So let's go slowly over here. So what did you say? Now you say they should light their lamps and they should face toward the center of the menorah. That is what I just told you. Now, remember I told you. Yeah that the wicks were tilted, they were all tilted towards the face of the menorah. And I explained to you the reason why he went for the menorah is to make a point that the reason we lit the candelabra, the reason we lit the menorah was not because we wanted to get light inside the sanctuary, it is because the purpose of the light was a, a mitzvah, it was a God's command to put up light. But it's not because God needed the light. God doesn't need the light of the menorah. That's why they lit the menorah in such a way God tells them that they should light it towards the uh, face of the menorah. Now also notice it says, now, how many branches we said did the menorah have? Seven. Seven. Why seven? Six branches. Six plus one. That's seven different counts. Why seven? One can ask. Well, seven, we find a lot of things number seven. We find seven days of the week, for example, right? Now, why is there seven days of the week? You know, why is there seven days to the week? Um, there's certain phenomenons that we have, right, which are natural phenomena. For example, what it makes up a year. A year is made up because there's a cycle of the solar. A solar cycle makes its cycles, 365 and a quarter days. Whatever it is, it's a cycle, and then it goes back. So that's the way it's divided. What makes a day a 24-hour day? Well, you can make it up into any amount of hours you want, but there's a cycle which every 24 hours comes back to its original. There's a certain cycle. That, that's a physical phenomenon, right? The month, which is determined by the moon, the, uh, the way we determine the Jewish, the Hebrew calendar, the way we determine our calendar, yeah? That's a lunar cycle. So that's 29 and a half days. The, 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 the moon goes its cycle. It's a physical phenomenon that we see, that we relate. But seven days of the week, there's no such a thing as seven. What, a week could have been eight days, it could have been six days. You could have made anything. How do we get seven? Because uh, Hashem created the oh. seven days. Hashem created the world the seven days. Six days of work He created, seven days rested. The number seven comes from God's creation of the world. Well, then one asks, why did God create the world specifically? Is there any significant? I mean, God isn't restricted to the number six or seven. Is there any significance why God created the uh, uh, the world in the number seven? But if you remember, we when we studied the Tanya, and we went through a lot of the... Uh, different this so we went through that there is 
actually seven emotional attributes with Gerard, right? Chesed, Gevura, Tiferes, Netzach, So every day really represents a certain uh, emotional attribute. It's a certain level. It's a spiritual level. Why is there seven? I mean, okay, God in His infinite wisdom knows that there has to be, there is divided into seven, seven different distinct emotional and corresponding to them, the world was created also in the nature of six and seven. Basically, the number seven, and we find the number seven also with regards to the sabbatical year, there are six years, and the seventh year, then seven times seven gives you a jubilee year. So there's always, the seven is a very significant number. Seven weeks Yeah, the seven weeks that we count, till Shavuot, the seven days, it's seven, seven weeks. So the number seven is not just an arbitrary number that we pick seven days a week. There is really no physical phenomena to say that something cycles every seven days. There is no cycle of seven days. That's purely connected to the creation of the world, which is connected to the emotions, which basically represents a variety of all different possibilities of kindness and strictness and tiferes, all chesed, gvura, tiferes, all the different uh, levels. Basically, we as a people also are represented. We have seven different types. There are seven branches. Uh, usually, uh, people belong to one category more than to another category. Well, some people belong maybe to the category of kindness. Their main uh, attribute. The main attribute or their main preoccupation, what mainly uh, describes them, is their acts of kindness. Okay, so they're very giving and very generous and very helpful and, you know, very benevolent. Those are people that are very kind people. Then you have some people who are very pious, they're very religious, they're very strict on themselves. They are very serious, you know, they're very. Uh, restrained, they're very confined, but they're doing it, you know, to make sure that they're uh, always, uh, you know, on their best. You know, it's 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 a different expression. But when we say the number seven, and we talk about seven branches, that basically represents the seven different emotions, the seven different attributes, and the seven different possibilities, which encompasses all different types. Of natures and all different types of, of 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 individuals in their service, and what happens is that seven gets later on uh, combined. Each one of ten turns into the number seventy. So you know the number seventy, for example, is the root of all the entire Jewish people. It starts from the number seventy because when you look in the in the in the Torah. You see that it, w- it all started with 70 people that went down to Egypt. The, it says in the Torah several times that when the Jews descended to Egypt, they went down with the number 70. It was 70 people. There was actually 69, a 70th person needed to be added. But Jacob's family who descended to Egypt were the number 70. There's also significant, you know, there are 70 nations of the world. So 7 and 10 times 7, which is 70, 
they basically represent the multitude of the people, all the different various different people with different emotional and uh, different uh, strength and their, their special expression in their service of God. So lighting the menorah means basically you're kindling each one of those branches, which is the basically the, the Jewish people, the menorah, is represented by Aaron. Aaron was the high priest. Aaron, when he lit the menorah, he basically put on fire. He illuminated, he brought out the best, and he gave each one of these branches, whether it's a person that belongs more to this branch, or that branch, whatever branch it is. And by the way, there's also 70 interpretations to the Torah, Shivan Panam La Torah, and then there's more. But there's also all connected, it all comes from the number seven. When Aaron lit the menorah, what it means is that Aaron went and he infused everybody with a special power to be able to reach their highest level. Aaron represents a servant of God. He was the priest. He was close to God. He gave of himself to help the others so that the uh, all the branches, each one in their own separate way of, ser- of serving and branching out from that menorah, to be able to uh, serve God in the most profound way. Now, when you light, you know, when you light something, sometimes you can light and you can stay there while you're lighting. In other words, you have a match and you're trying to light a candle or something, and you're standing there and you're lighting it, right? But then, if you walk away, the light goes out. That means you are igniting it, you are there the whole time lighting it. But that's not really lighting it properly. Right? Lighting something properly means that you light the candle, and even when you leave, it still stays on. You don't want the candle to go out when you go on. Like for example, there is a halacha for the Hanukkah menorah that we light on Hanukkah. You know, that if you light the menorah and then it goes out, you did the mitzvah, you lit it. It went out, not your business. In the, in the, in the Gemara. But Allah, if it goes out, you did the mitzvah. But when it came to the menorah over here, the Torah uses a strange words. I want to uh, go again, and I want to ask Yishai to read me again. I want to see how the English translates the word. Speaks to Ar- speak to Aaron and say to him, what is the next word? What does it say over there? When you light the lamps, the seven It says lamps. when you light the lamps, right? Yeah. When you light the lamps. But the Hebrew doesn't say when you light the lamps. The no. Hebrew says, Beha'alotcha. You see? When you go up to the That's, okay, that's another interpretation. That's another interpretation. Because it was simply it's at least. Who's a step there? That's right. The Hebrew normal way would be, he's saying it in Hebrew, the Hebrew term would be to light, would be, Beha'alotcha, when you light. That means. Halotcha means that you, when you go up. What does it mean when you when you bring up? So Rashi comments. Rashi says it's not enough for the high priest just to light. He has to make sure that the fire catches. He has to make sure that it continues burning. He has to make sure that the flame remains even when he leaves. It is going to be burning. Well, the message is very a powerful message. We're all lighting other people's menorahs also. In other words, whenever we are involved with people and we're trying to inspire them and we're trying them, sometimes we can just throw a match at them, we'd light them, and then we say goodbye. 
That's not good enough. When Aaron lit all the branches, all the different attributes and all the different representation of the Jewish people, he stood there and he made sure that those lamps will be lit and stay lit even when he lives, leaves them. So Baha'alotcha means when you bring them up and they stay, we need that flame, that spark to be burning and going up all on its own without any more needing Aaron to be there to light there. So this is the uh, command over here. So it, even though it says Baha'alotcha, when you light, but it really means, Baha'alotcha really means when you bring it up. There's another interpretation, Rashi says, that there was like a little stool that was in front of the menorah, so that Aaron would get up under the stool. Well, to light it, he can probably light it from where he's standing. The menorah was uh, tall, uh, but he can light it from where he's standing. But when he had to clean out the uh, inside from the ashes, the wicks, the inside, he'd get up on a stool. So it's also Baalotcha, when you're going up. So when he would clean the menorah, he would go up. But in the first comment, Rashi says that you have to light the menorah in such a way that it stays lit. Okay, so that's the... And then we, we already spoke about the fact that it has to be towards the face of the menorah so that to show that it's not God's... that God needs the light, but it's really uh, more of a mitzvah for us to... that we ignite, that we have the, 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 the power. Which is the, also the other thing that we all have... Each person has the ability to really become a shining light, to become a, uh, uh, a, a, a part of this beautiful mitzvah. All seven branches, each one can become part of this menorah. I just want to say one more thing that we're going to do in the next verse. It's brought down also in the Rashi over here, that right before here it's brought down, and the Torah relates that all the different leaders from all the tribes they went and brought a special gift. When the uh, sanctuary was inaugurated in the very beginning, so the, each of the leaders of the tribes, of all the Jewish tribes, each one of them brought an identical uh, sacrifice, identical gift to the, uh, to the, uh, to the temple. But there was one exception. That was the tribe of the Levites, of the tribe of Levi. Who was the leader of the tribe of Levi? It was Aaron, Aaron the high priest. So, Rashi says, when Aaron saw that all these tribes, the leaders, were participating and they were part of the building of the sanctuary, he got jealous. He says, look, I am not part of it, because 12 tribes, yes, but Levite, no. The Levite did not take part in that. So he was. He felt bad. He says, "Why should I not be part of that?" You know, a lot of times, you know, in our lifetimes, when we see situations, people are involved in good things, and maybe you know we we weren't called or we weren't asked, but we feel bad. Why is everybody involved? Everybody's excited about something, and we're not. So that's why. When he felt bad, Hashem says to Aaron. I want you to know, don't feel bad, because what you're going to be doing is actually more value than anything that they did. That's why Hashem tells them, you like the menorah. Okay, Ella, why don't you do verse 2? Yeah. No, I don't have it. You took it.
Okay, there are different pages. No, there are different pages. Why did Hashem say the same thing for Korah? You don't have the beginning. Because he didn't have a lot. You don't have the beginning. What do you mean? Again, what is the question? The way you said how Aaron felt bad. So Hashem told him, don't worry, you're going to be doing is like more important. So maybe Korach felt bad that he wasn't involved more. Well, but it, it depends where it comes from. But Aaron just felt bad, but he didn't rebel against Moshe. He didn't challenge God. He didn't because of his... But he, no, he, he, he wanted, he was yearning, but he did it in a respectful way. But Korach went and made because he wasn't happy with the verdict. He went and made uh, a, a rebel. Now, I can only assume if Korach really wanted to do more because he was really interested in doing more and he would believe in Moshe it wasn't even that he didn't believe because he did believe in Moshe but he was just so offended he was so you know he was so angry that he was passed over and he wasn't given the the opportunity and he felt that he was wealthy and he was smart and he was learned and he was yichas he had the lineage he was everything and then he was given, he was snubbed so badly that he was, he couldn't contain himself. And he was ready, I'll take a little. Oh, yeah. uh, thank you. He was ready even to hurt himself and everybody around him just to get his way. So he was angry for that. But he didn't accept God's word. He, he didn't accept that what Moses was telling him was the word, that's what God directed. If Moshe, God forbid, would have made up this story out of himself, like Korach accused him, then Korach had all right to be incensed and angry because he says, "Why is Moshe this nepotism over there?" Well, he's also in the family. He says he wants to, he wants to keep it all in the family. He wants to give all the honors to themselves, and he passed them over. I understand, you know. We have, you know, many shuls have been broken up because of a person thought that they deserved honor that they were supposed to get, they didn't get, and they didn't care. They, you know, they, they, <laughs> you just. If you touch them, you know, if you, uh, you know, their ego is, uh, they go crazy. So, this is, um, this is part of what happened with Korach. But with Aaron, we're not saying that Aaron did anything. Aaron was just felt bad not being part. I can assume if Korach just felt bad, he would have probably earned and God would have given him something else to do in a positive way. Alan, will you do? Speak to Aaron. Oh, did you just say Okay, do the next one. Three. Aaron did so. He he lit the lamps toward the face of the menorah, as the Lord had commanded Moses. What do you think this verse is telling us? He did what Hashem told him. Was this something so difficult for him to do? Was it a, a difficult job? Matter of fact, Rashi comments to tell us the praise that he didn't change. He did as he was told. Maybe this was an illogical thing for him. I mean, it was, it take suggestions. Maybe it was illogical for him to go ahead and light the menorah. Because what did he do? It says Aaron did so. What did he do? He lit the lamps towards the face of the menorah. Oh, so that's such a big deal, right? To light the... the, the also, he, he had to make sure that it's still... Uh, st- the flame is still there when he lit. Good point. 
But I'm going to ask you exactly on that point that you're saying. Does the verse tell us that this is what Aaron did? No, but it says Aaron did so. And before, uh, when, when uh, Hashem spoke to Aaron, he said two things. It's, uh, he should light this way and also he should make sure. Very, very good. I like the logic. That's true. But the question that I'm asking you is, so why would the verse single out and say, Aaron did so, and just emphasizing that he lit them to the face of the menorah without uh, not mentioning the other aspect that he has to light the menorah should go by itself. It would, isn't the verse almost telling you that Aaron did so, but he's telling you what he did so. In other words, that there was something that was praiseworthy for Aaron that he did specifically at this part that he lit them all towards the face of the menorah. It seems like that, that it seems like that's the emphasis here. Not or else the verse should have maybe repeated and say, Well Aaron did so, oh he lit the menorah, they went up by themselves. But that's not mentioned over here. Now obviously that Moshe, that Aaron did whatever Moshe told him. There would be no reason for him not to tell him. We're actually wondering why would the verse even have to specifically tell us, well, he did as he was told. I mean, if it's not such a big deal that he did what he was told, why, why wouldn't he do what he was told? Why, why tell us that? And Rashi comments and he says, it tells us the praise of Aaron that he didn't change. But why would he change? It doesn't say, if you would tell me, well, it t- tells us that Aaron, he did so. But it tells us, um, specifically Rashi says, that he didn't change. In other words, he, he, there was something here, it sounds like he should have changed it. But he, he, he's praised because he did so, that he didn't change. Um, number one, putting the wicks in such a way, probably took more effort and more difficulty to do. Um, he could have maybe said, ah, the details are not so important, yeah? I gotta light the menorah, let me just light the menorah, and then, am I gonna go sit there and make every wick go into that corner, and going in that side directions? Maybe he did so, that he didn't use, he sort of, he did so, even though maybe logically, it didn't make sense to him. Because logically, he thought that the menorah should be lit in each one its place to get more light, as we said before. That would be the real, the logical way. He said no. He didn't change. God said to do it this way. That's the way he did it. I'm leaving this open. I don't have, I have to look at the commentary. I didn't look through the commentaries. I'm just presenting this. But it seems from the verse and from the Rashi over here that somehow he's praiseworthy for doing it in this way that he led him towards the face of the menorah. Okay, let's do the next verse. Warren, will you say the next verse? This was the form of the menorah. Hammered work of gold, from its base to its flower, it, it was hammered work. According to the form that the Lord had shown Moses, so did he construct the menorah. Okay, so I want you to go back to the beginning of the verse. Read the first uh, sentence of the verse. What does it say? This was, this was the form of the menorah. What is the... When you say this, when you say this, this is means that you're showing something that you you you're, you're you have it in front of you. So what does it mean? It says this was the 
menorah the way it was made. This goes back to the construction of the menorah, Rashi says. This goes back to the construction of the menorah. The menorah was very difficult to build. Why was it very difficult to build? What does it mean? It was what? What was the way it was built? It was? What does hammered work mean? From one piece of gold. There was one chunk piece of gold, and they stretched it into all directions, and they made and they formed it. And it was a very intricate, detailed menorah. It had flowers engraved in it, it had buttons, and it had uh, cups, it had various... Huh? Here it is. What is that? Menorah. I can't see anything there. Oh. Yeah, well, that's round. Over there was the sticks, they went out. Uh, straight out, in an angle. But in any event, um, the uh, the menorah was was a very, very difficult thing to build because they weren't allowed to take pieces and solder it together and melt it down together. It, they took one piece and as the bottom of the menorah is like our menorah. If you have a toll, imagine a silver menorah we have. This was out of gold. But we have today the silver menorahs or metal menorahs, like the bottom is like a hollow piece. That's called the box of the menorah. All this was made and shaped out of one piece of gold. It was all solid. It was all no, no. It wasn't actually. It wasn't when you say it was gold. When you say solid, but it wasn't a block. It started off with a block, but the inside of the menorah actually was not solid. It was actually hollow. That's why it's called. It, it was. It was sort of pushed to the sides, you know, the way they did it. And then they used all different kinds of tools. Now, apparently, they weren't allowed to lose any drop of gold either. It was made exactly, the exact amount of gold, and everything was there. It was one kikar, it was a measure of gold. Kikars of that, and the, you know, together with its tools. And they stretched it and did everything they needed to do just to keep the, the, the shape of the menorah. Musha made this himself, right? Oh! So here we have very interesting. Uh, it says now, if you look in the portion of Truma, when God is talking to Moses, God says to Moses, "You shall construct. You shall construct. You should make the Mishkan. You should make the, the table. You should make." But Moses didn't make it. Moses didn't make it himself. Then later on, you read in the verses in the portions of uh, Kisisa, Vayakil, Pekude. Later on. The Torah tells us that oh, there was a Betzalel Ben Uri Ben Chur. That was also in the family because that was Miriam. Miriam <laughs> uh, married, uh, so that was her son, uh, and it was grandson, a great grandson. But from the tribe of Yehuda and Achisomach Lamatidon, there were two major craftspeople plus all the other people that were uh, had the ability, the talent to work. With gold, with silver, with copper, with the with the weaving, with all the different kinds of things that they needed, but it was headed by two people, by Betzalel and Oliyov. Now, both Betzalel and Oliyov, they're the one that actually constructed or gave out the work of the construction to the various different workers. But Moshe didn't make it himself. So when God said to Moses. God just told Moses what to do. Moses gave instructions to the other people how they would do. Matter of fact, we also find sometimes they defied Moses' instruction too. Because like Moses told them first to build the uh, the vessels and then to build the, the sanctuary. 
and the craftspeople said, but wait a minute, if we're going to build the vessels, where are we going to put them? We have to first build the sanctuary, and then we'll put the vessels into the sanctuary. That's the way they, some construction, oh, he said, yeah, well, that's the way I was told, that's the way it's supposed to be. First you build the structure, and then you put the vessels. But, even though the Torah writes, you, you make, you make, it doesn't mean you physically. You instruct other people to make, and that was Betzal, which Hashem tells them later on. But over here, it says, Vizeh, and this, this is the this is the make of the menorah, because Moshe couldn't figure out how to do this. God had to show him, himself, how to do it. Now, you asked me, how was the menorah construction? There is two, actually, like everything, you know, there are always different opinions. One opinion says that actually was done by uh, Betzalel and Aliyah, they did, those who did you know, the craftspeople. But another opinion says is that he didn't have a choice. Rashi brings it down too. He threw it into the fire, it came out by itself. Because they could not uh, actually construct it. But what's the message behind it? Why was it all constructed? Uh, why was it made so difficult? Uh, why was it made so difficult? Why was the menorah made so difficult to... Uh, uh, to construct, well, you should make the pieces because it's a very important. You know, remember we talked about the seven branches that it represents all types of people. It's important to know that no matter where we are, we all come from the same piece. It's not put together. We're not pasted together. We really belong. We really fit. You know, at a certain level, we all fit. We're all part. We're all children, and we're all fitting, and we all belong, and. If you dig deep enough, you'll see you come back to that same piece of gold. There's one piece of gold that encompasses all. We stretch it a little here, a little there. One From one branch to the other branch, there's a distance. But that's only as they come out in the branches. But where do we all come from? We were all one piece of gold. We're really all in one of the same. We're not really different. And God wants us to know this, that there are seven branches but they're still all really one. So the difference doesn't make a difference between one and the other. We're always, uh, we're always together. Um, and in this verse, so do, do your verse again, and you'll see in the verse it says, every part of it, whether small or little, go ahead. Do four over again? Yeah, do it again. This was the form of the menorah, hammered work of gold, from its base to its flower. What, why is it saying from its base to its flower? It's, it's, it's one piece. The base is a big piece, the flower is a tiny piece, so he's saying every part of it, whether it's the base with the flower. Uh, it was hammered work. Hammered work, all the same. In other words, small pieces of the menorah, large pieces of the menorah, it was all hammered work. Uh, according to the form that the Lord had shown Moses, so did he construct the menorah. So God had to show him the menorah. Now here it says, he did the menorah. So, what did it say over there? How did, how did it say over there? The the Read this word again. As the Lord has... Uh, that the Lord had shown Moses. Right. So did he construct... Who's he? Did he? So he. Who's the he? Lord. Moshe. No, Lord. It goes both ways. You're both right. Either it was the one who constructed, or it may go the he can go on the Lord. That he, that actually at the end, as we said, they couldn't construct the menorah themselves. It was made by God. But you know what? Those are two different interpretations. I know there's two different interpretations. One of them says that Moses, or whoever created it, or constructed it, not Moses physically, or his agent, Betzalel, 
or it was actually the law because they couldn't construct it themselves. Marina, your turn. Next passage. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them. Sorry, say next verse. We'll do two more verses because I'm going to have to run pretty soon because i got to go seven, get the minions. Okay. No, this, this is what you shall do to them so as to cleanse them. Sprinkle them with press, cleans- press the cleansing one. water and pass a razor over all their flesh. Then they shall wash their garments and cleanse themselves. Okay, and Stuart, you say next verse? Then they shall take a young bull with its meal offering of fine flour mingled with oil, and you shall take a second young bull as a sin offering. What's going on over here? Anybody know what's going on here? What are we talking about over here? The sacrifices. Yeah, yeah but what, 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 sacrificing what? What are we talking about over here? What's going on over here? It sounds like Shabbos. Sounds <laughs> you like take Shabbos. your bath and you shower and you get your food ready for and Shabbos. Get, and you take your haircut. Right, right. That's right. Well, they're getting these guys are getting ready for Shabbos, for their own Shabbos. To begin them for their Avodat Hashem in the Mishkan. You know, the Jewish people are divided into three categories, besides the seven that we were talking about before. Three categories. You know that. If you go to the temple, you see there's a Kohen, there's a Levi, Israel. and Israelites, right? Israelites come from where? From all the different tribes. Well, now it's Yehuda or Shimon. Whatever the yeah. tribes, they would qualify as Israelites. We don't know that's... Uh, Another Isn't story, it enough look at those even if they even ever come back? Okay, whatever the case is, but I don't want to get I don't want to go down that road now. But the bar, the bottom line is they come from one of the other tribes. Uh, you say you're only from two tribes, whatever the other ones were lost. But the bottom line is they're not ladies. They are the tribes. Those are the Israeli tribe. Then we have a Kohen and a lady, right? What makes somebody a Kohen? And what makes somebody for a Levi? Levi was the third son of Jacob. First he had Reuven, Shimon, and then came Levi. Originally, as the verse tells us, God had in mind, so to speak, whatever that means exactly, but originally God had in mind that some of the Jewish people have to be of his service to God, to be in the temple, to do the service. So originally God had in mind it should be given to the firstborn. How do you pick somebody over the other one? Almost makes sense that the firstborn should be the one, right? The firstborn, each male firstborn would be the one drafted to the service of God. That would actually give an equal shot to every tribe. It didn't matter which tribe you were, it was just a matter if you were born first. So the firstborn, the Bechor, would be the first one. So there would be 12 firstborns, is what you're saying? Not only 12. Every firstborn to any tribe I mean, oh. would be, every firstborn would be, would qualify. So it would be only would be what would be the firstborn. That was the original, so to speak, the original plan. Furthermore, as we see, when God took the Jewish people out of Egypt, he went and he killed all the firstborn of the Egyptians. At that particular time, God acquired for himself by s- distinguishing and separating and saving the Jewish firstborns 
promote the Egyptians firstborn whether it's the animals or the human beings all the firstborn died so God sort of chose at that point and says the firstborn belong to me they are supposed to be to my service that was the plan originally however later on as time went on and not that much later seven weeks later after they left Egypt the Jews got the Torah then Moses went up on the mountain the next day and forty days later it was only the, the Jews what? it was only the Levim went into so the only people that stayed so when the, he took a look all the tribes failed they all it's went and they worshipped and they went to worship the golden calf and God was very upset with the Jewish people. He was ready to wipe them all out and, you know, start over anew. He, he was very upset with them. So, what happened? Moshe. God at that point, Moses pleaded for them, but God at that point decided there was one tribe of all the tribes who, that tribe did not worship idols. And that was the tribe of Levi. Levi and all of his descendants, they did not participate. Not one person of the tribe of Levi went along with that plan. Of course, there were others from other tribes also that didn't go along. But as a tribe, as a whole, and God said, you know what, I'm going to substitute the firstborns from all the Jews, and I'm going to substitute them for the Levites. Now, instead of having the firstborn serve me, it's going to be the Levites. In last week's Parsha, actually, in the Parsha of, 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 of the previously, in the previous Parsha of Mamidbar, we, we read in the Torah that there was actually an exchange there were 22,300 firstborns or I should say 22,275 firstborn and there were 22,000 Levites so the 22,000 Levites exchanged the 22,000 firstborn they took their place, they exchanged them. And not only that, the 275 that were left over from the uh, firstborn that didn't have a levy to exchange them, they had to pay out five shekels. They had to give five shekels to, to, to Aaron's sons to redeem themselves because otherwise they were drafted because the Bechorim had to, they were naturally, because they were initially meant to serve to Hashem. So they had to give like the Pidyon Aben, that's right, but they paid it themselves. In the one who, there's only one in our history who wasn't redeemed. What? Shmuel Navi. But, and the way they did it, I mean, th- that's a whole different sex way they did it. But I want to get now too, because I'm running out of time. Uh, I want to get, I just want to say what we're talking about over here. But then, within the tribe of Levi, of Levi, they also divided into two sections. There were Aaron, who was also a son. So, the way it started, it was Levi. Levi had three sons, Gershon, Kahos, and Merori. So, figure like You have Jacob. Jacob had 12 tribes, right? One of them, the third one was Levi. Levi had three sons, Gershon, Kahot, and Merori. Then his middle son, Kahot, had four sons. Amram, Yitzhar, Heber, and Uziel. Right? And Amram had three sons, had two sons and a daughter, Moshe and Aaron and Miriam, right? Now, from Levi, all the Gershon, Kosomerori, all Levis. 
from Kahas, Amram Yitzchak Heber Nuzil, all them, all ladies, no, all still all ladies, Amram had two sons, Moshe and Aaron, Moshe is still a lady, Aaron became the Kohen, Aaron his children, Aaron had four children, Nodov, Avihu, Elazar and Isamar, Nodov and Avihu, they died, before they died, at the time they inaugurated the Mishkan. So really the only two Kohanim left, three Kohanim, was Aaron, Elazar, and Tamar. They were the Kohanim. They were the high priests. They were in charge. The Levis served the Kohanim. They helped the Kohanim with the other things. We have to just, not enough time to discuss it all. But they helped the, they moved the things, they slept, they, they guarded, they sang, they, they, they participated. But they were sort of given to Aaron and his children. So it was Aaron and his sons. Now everybody who was born later on, Elazar and Itamar, their children, they became Kohanim, and their children became Kohanim too. Now there was one exception, just so you know, when those children that Elazar, so we say Elazar was Aaron's son, the third one, okay, the two older ones died, so it was left Elazar in summer. Elazar had a son, one of his sons, his name was Pilchas. Now, Pilchas was born already at the time that his father, Lozer, was anointed for a coin. But Pilchas was not anointed for a coin. So the anointment that took place for uh, Lozer did not apply to Pilchas. So Pilchas really wasn't a coin. Later on, the Torah gave him a special gift that made him into a coin too. Pilchas became a coin. That happened later on, we learned at the Parish of Pinchas, and in the end, how he became a Kohen. But he really was the Kohen. The bottom line is, from the time when Moses anointed them, and they did their procedure, that's when they became the Kohanim. So who are the Kohanim? Aaron, his son, Elazar, and his summer, and all of their descendants. Those are the Kohanim. The Levim is everybody else. But the Levim were exchanged for the Bechorim, for the firstborn. And then, after that, they needed to prepare themselves to inaugurate, to become prepared. What we're learning now is, this is how the Levim, the Levites became part in the service of the Mishkan. But sorry, we're out of time now. I'm going to leave it over here.